pastiche in, in your business. But it's also there's a crime element. Was 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 were, were mysteries, thrillers, crime novels? Were, were they were you interested in them as a as a teenage reader, or is, it, is, is that is that yeah. later? Yeah, uh, yeah, I was. Um, I like clever crime. Okay. Um, and so, well, I, I'm often asked, you know, which which books when you were that age were you reading? And um, I was always a great fan of Joan Smith's uh, oh. Loretta Lawson books. I really loved those. I was actually really, really lucky. I was able to meet her um, <laughs> at, just a while back and um, just talk about the, those books. And it was just like sitting with one of your childhood heroes. One of the things you can't, this can't be happening. You know, it was just, it was really, really, what about those really books? lovely. What about the crime <sighs> plot in general um, as a PLT? What I'd like about it, I like the intellectual satisfaction of good crime. Um, I have a big thing about endings. Uh, I can bore on about this for hours, but I promise I won't. But uh, I have a big problem about books that don't end properly. And a lot of modern fiction it just seems to me to just stop. It doesn't yeah. end. It doesn't, get, it doesn't get rounded off. It doesn't get concluded. It just stops. Mm. And, and I get so frustrated with that because anyone can come up with a brilliant opening Anyone can come up with a fantastic mystery, mm. but it's how you resolve it that's important. Because otherwise, you just leave the the reader just hanging on, thinking, "Well, what happened there?" Um, and the thing about crime is, you can't do that in crime. Crime keeps you honest as a or mystery, if you like. It doesn't have to be crime in the p- police procedural sense, but anything with a mystery involved in it, like that, um, it keeps you honest. It 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 forces you to actually resolve what you've done mm-hmm. uh, to to deal with it properly uh, and I always think that that's um, one of the great attractions of crime is that it does give read- the reader that pleasure the pleasure of the ending mm-hmm. uh, and I'm particularly concerned to do that in my own books um, and it actually it was very funny because with um, with Tom All Alone's uh, originally in Tom All Alone's the way that book ended was with old Maddox Charles's beloved great uncle he originally died at the end of that book. And it was a beautiful ending because, you know, there's been all this, you know, drama and his young nephew's been out and trying to resolve these crimes and he, he comes back to the house and he wants to tell his great-uncle what's happened. And it's too late. The old man has died. And it was... I loved it. It was such a lovely ending. But then my, my, um, my US editor actually said to me, no, you can't possibly get him <laughs> off. <laughs> I want him back for another book, which is the nicest reason in the world to um, to have to rewrite your ending. But then I thought, oh, what am I going to do? Because I know I'd already written a few pieces and had them published on websites about how I thought the ending of books is so important. So I thought, well, I, I can't now do a bad ending myself, having you know sounded off about endings. So it was it was actually a real challenge to to come up with a good ending. And the, the hilarious bit about it was I I then started getting emails from my editor saying, whatever you do, don't kill off the cat. A <laughs> <laughs> really important character. It's a really important character. And I said, no, don't worry, the cat's safe in my hands, being a cat lover, as anyone who knows me on Twitter will know. Um, so, yes, that was, that was quite an interesting uh, whole, whole period of trying to find another ending for a book that you already ended in a completely different way. Had you seen it as a I mean, it's a, it's a challenge of the series, isn't it, that mm. the idea of an ending perhaps might not come for 33 books. Um, <laughs> but how did you see it... As Did you see Charles Maddox as being serious? Was it written no. as a one-off? It, um, the first one, Murder at Mansfield Park, absolutely. Oh, sorry. Yeah, that was absolutely a, a, a one-off because Murder at Mansfield Park being set in 1811, that's the older Maddox um, who carries that book, obviously. 
Uh, and then what actually happened was that um, once that book got published, I got loads of people saying to me how much they loved him as a character. And I was very partial to him as well, because he was the only one in that book that wasn't, uh, didn't have some sort of antecedents in Jane Austen. He was mine, it's my own. Um, of course, no one dies of any kind of <laughs> natural causes in Jane Austen, so she never has a detective or a need for one. Um, but yeah, I, lo- I loved him too. I thought he was, he was great. He was a sort of proto-Sherlock Holmes in some ways. And a lot of people really loved him. And then they started to say, well, why don't you bring him back? And I thought, well, yes, perhaps I should think about doing that. Uh, and then I thought, okay, well, how can we do this? And could I find another literary angle? And then I thought, well, okay, well, Austin Dickens. Um, <laughs> but it's quite a leap, isn't it? Because, I mean, you could have you could have had the older Maddox, I suppose. For longer, yes. yes. It's interesting, that point, because in theory, you say, okay, you've got the whole of the 19th century at your, or your disposal, what are you going to do? Um, but actually, it's much narrower than you think, mm. because if you're going to write a book which is a homage of some kind to a 19th century work or character, figure, you've got to choose someone that people know, because otherwise it's not going to be commercial. I mean, one of the saddest things that I've been forced to to realise is I couldn't even write a book that was inspired by Middlemarch. Really? I don't think so, no, because I don't think enough people have read it. So not Murder murder in the Prelude? prelude. Yes, well, Murder at Middlemarch, it's got a nice ring to it, but um, I don't think enough people read George Eliot anymore, and I think that's terribly sad, but it's just true. Um, You actually need to choose somebody who is not just read, but ideally adapted on TV uh, or film. Um, so, of course, Jane Austen, uh, absolutely no problem with that at all. Likewise, Dickens. Um, Dickens is in our bloodstreams, I think, largely because of the TV and film adaptations more now than, than the books. But that doesn't matter because he's still in our bloodstreams. And I think you know, most of us have our view of 19th century London through Dickens' eyes. Was the Shelleys a bit of a risk then? The Shelleys was, yes, well... The Shelley's is always going to be more of a challenge. We can obviously talk about that in terms of using biographical material. That's a, a very much bigger monster to deal with. But monster is the word. Yes. The reason that, that uh, the Shelley's did work was because of Frankenstein. Right. Um, and it was the hook um, to get people interested. That most, If you say the word Shelley to people now, most people would think Frankenstein. That would be the first thing that would come to their mind. They wouldn't think of Percy. Um, a lot of people don't even know yeah. about Percy. Um, but they have got these fantastically exciting lives. A lot of people have heard of Byron. They know the sort of you know mad, bad, and dangerous to know thing about Byron. So, um, and really, the sort of Frankenstein summer, the way that that book comes about, was the hook to to get people in. So the way that I I um, deal with that aspect of their history is quite early in the novel, quite deliberately, so that quite early on in that story you have something that you're familiar with if you're a reader who doesn't know that much about um, the the real characters behind it and then you go we go we go into much more detail about the other aspects of their lives which are fantastically (laughs) dark and tormented and fraught and and absolutely marvelous material for fiction um just returning um i'm just we'll, we'll move back towards the treacherous lights and the shelleys um your own writing. Were you were you when you were writing at school and those early um, those early, were you writing fiction at all or was it just essays and stories at school? Or did you, and did you enjoy writing from the from the off? Is that um... yes? I always enjoyed writing. I stopped writing anything quote unquote creative um, after probably O level. I think 
okay. most people probably did then. I don't know whether they do now. Um, you start getting into the sort of business end of your of your school career, and and there isn't so much time for creative writing. So you're into the sort of essay writing yeah. um, mode. And certainly when I was at university, I didn't write anything creatively. A lot of people did, but but I, I didn't. And you went to Oxford? Yes, yeah. And um, studying English, what, did you have particular passions at, at, at university, with literary passions? Well, some of them are the ones that I've ended up writing about. Okay. So yes, <laughs> Austin, definitely. Um, Dickens. Hardy, I love. Um, Hardy, I'd love to do something with at some point. Um, you know, great, terribly flawed writer, but a very, very powerful one um, in terms of the poetry I didn't really do much on Shelley I love Keats oh I love Keats um, and, but again he lived such a blameless life you can't really turn him into a murder <laughs> mystery I'm afraid <laughs> um, so yes I, I suppose I, I have always loved um, you know the, the great uh, the, the great prose literature of, of, of English literature is, is one of the abiding passions of my life um, but yes, Keats in terms of poetry, John Donne, Gerard Manley Hopkins, mm-hmm. absolutely fabulous writer, breathtakingly good. Uh, so yes, it's a it's such a, a a wonderful privilege to go to study literature for three years and just immerse yourself in it. I, mean, I, I was an English student too, and the, the classic Paul Draymond English student was sort of rather, uh, which I probably lived up to, was sort of rather lazy, uh, dishevelled, um, and, and with a slight sense of purposelessness and aimlessness. Um, Particularly about what I mean, I'm sure Michael Gove would back all of this up. But um, how how were you as a student, and, and did you have a, a sense of where you wanted to to go afterwards? No real sense of where I wanted to go. I was tediously swatty. I think okay. as, as, as a student, I was, <laughs> I was um, very um, diligent. And um, did Oxford live up to those earlier? Dreams, yes, a... yes, it did. Um, it did. It was, uh, you know, it like a magic kingdom, really. Um, and and it, uh, I still, I still love it. Uh, I, I'm lucky actually because I actually do the the research for the novels now in the Bodleian Library, okay. so that's fantastic. In fact, I used to sit under Shelley when I was researching a treacherous library. <laughs> this feeling of him looking over my shoulder, and saying, "What are you doing?" <laughs> <laughs> so that was actually quite quite entertaining because, of course, Shelley went to Oxford and, and famously lasted about five minutes. He was expelled <laughs> after two terms for promoting atheism. But now has a gigantic and rather beautiful statue. Gigantic statue in the college that expelled him. Yes, yeah, so you say, what goes around? <laughs> I still remember that wonderful moment of Al Kilmer and the saint is dressed sort of as Shelley and lying in the same same pose. It's a it's a great it's a great moment in Shelley's posthumous life, I'm sure. But um, when you left Oxford, what did you do? Because you didn't. Uh, I mean, was it was a literary career in in any way uh, um, on on the table for a, for an English student? Or um, it was interesting because I had a place to do a doctorate at that point. Okay. Um, I, that's what I thought I wanted to do. And rather, uh, just suddenly and inexplicably, in the summer before I was, I was due to come back in the autumn to take up that place, I just suddenly decided I didn't want to do it. Um, and that I wanted to do something completely different. Uh, and that was round about time of Big Bang. So a lot of the people I'd been at college with went straight into the city. And you know that was it was starting to shape up as a really exciting place to be, um, and I decided, well, okay, well, you can you've done an awful lot with words uh, for about the last ten years. Um, what about numbers? <laughs> well, it was it sounds a bit flippant, but there was a sense in which I wanted to challenge myself to do something different, and that 
doing the doctorate would have been going back around the same paddock again. And and I, I think it, I just thought that perhaps that wasn't the, the most you know, stimulating thing to have done and I want to challenge myself a bit more than that. So I did actually, I went and worked in the city um, for four or five years. Did you like um, it? What were you, and what were you doing? I was in a dealing room actually. Ah. Um, and it was, it was sort of fascinating. It was a bit like people watching really. It was, it was a sort of strange environment. Um, very macho then. I was going to um, say it's not... Really a... macho. And, and people were saying things then that you never get away with now. You get sued for saying some of the things that people would say. Um, Can I ask or not? <laughs> well, it was just, you know, they, they, they did say things to, especially to young female trainees, which <laughs> probably it would be ill-advised to say now. Um it was, uh, I tried to explain it, that working in a dealing uh, room environment was both incredibly stressful and incredibly tedious, <laughs> which is, uh, you know, on the face of it, a very odd combination. Um, so to explain what I meant by that, um, it's stressful because if you're doing big transactions, uh, even if you only get it slightly wrong, that's a lot of money. So, you know, an awful lot at stake, very high, high pace in which these things are being done. Um, no time to think, oh, hang on a minute, have I done that? You know, there isn't any time. Uh, so very, very high, high stress in that sense and, and sort of heart pounding. Um, but it's all the same. You, you, right. do, you do one of those and then you do another one of those and then you do another one of those. So that's the tedious aspect of it. It's high stress, but no variety. <laughs> Um, so, so it, I think that's one of the reasons why everyone says it's a young person's game because you know you can cope with that degree of stress. You know, if you're if you're sort of young and energetic, and after a while you probably think perhaps I don't want to do that anymore. Um, did you did you enjoy that the the, the sort of pulse pounding elements of it? For a bit, right? Yeah, for a bit. Um, there were some quite exhilarating days, um, but then uh, it did get a bit boring and what I did was and I, I actually took some exams and um, qualified to be a corporate treasurer at that point which meant I could do the poacher turn gamekeeper thing if you like <laughs> so I actually went to work with one of my clients okay. uh, on the other side of the phone you know literally down the other end of the phone um, so I was then it was then more intellectually interesting because you were actually managing a company's uh, financial position so when I was working if you had as it might be assets in France on, uh, on your balance sheet you might want to do hedging because um, of course we didn't have the euro then um, you know in relation to French francs in order to make sure that you weren't exposed and all that stuff. so that that was intellectually more stimulating rather than just doing the transactions you were actually having a look at what was going on behind the scenes in terms of the decisions the company was making commercially and what that then meant in terms of how it managed its financial affairs and exchange rates and all that sort of thing so I'm going to ask the, the sort of my old school English student question that was, having not really understood any of, of, of that because of my own limitations but what did what role did reading and literature play during this <laughs> period was it was it just fun or did yeah, you, I mean, we, fun. Were you did you have any time at all I mean I, I know those jobs can be all all-encompassing and uh, both also mm. socially I'm, I'm guessing but, uh, yeah um, that's what I meant when I said um, I don't think I could have become a writer then even if I wanted to because the, the hours were so long and it was tiring um, and by the time you got home that you know you just want to put your feet up in front of the telly frankly and not do anything else and I would read I would read on the train I'd read on holiday um, I was reading more than probably well I, I know I was reading more then than I do now right. um, and, and people often ask me that and say well what do you do you read now and actually I don't I don't read very much at all and there's a very good reason for that 
And that is that if you're writing yourself, if you're reading other people's stuff, it actually gets in the way. It gets in the way in a weird sort of radio jamming sort of mm. a way. Um, and the irony is that the better the book is that you're reading, the worse that problem is. So it's okay, you can read the newspaper, you can read magazines, you can probably read pretty trashy stuff. But if you're reading a serious book that's been well written, that will start to actually get in the way of the, of the voice of your own book. It's a bit hard to explain, but it, it sort of seeps mm. in somehow uh, and gets in the way and, sort of, and, and the characters start to interfere with people you're trying to write. So actually when I'm writing, and that's most of the time these days, I don't read at all quite deliberately. Unless I'm on holiday, when I'm just you know can carve out a whole week and 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 then it's um you know completely, uh, you know free time. But you know I don't actually read much anymore. So people say, have you read um you know Wolf Hall or Bring Up the Bodies or whatever it might be? And the answer is no, no I haven't. Does that work though for the books that certainly in the the Mansfield Park and Tom Paul Alone's? That's something that you're. Parodying, so I don't mean to mm. that lightheartedly, but the, the, mm. where the, there are moments where the, the, the will you be reading Dickens while were you reading Dickens while you were writing Tom Alone's just just for for reference points or oh yes okay. yes absolutely um, partly because um, I wanted to have a sense of I wasn't trying to write like Dickens in the way that I tried to write like Jane Austen in fact I deliberately didn't try to write like Dickens I, I wanted a, a, a blue water between me and him. Um, partly because actually your word is right I, I think anyone trying to write like Dickens will descend into parody Party. in about five minutes flat he is he is not amenable to pastiche in the way that <laughs> Austin is yeah. Austin is partly because I heard prose is much more uh, solid I think in a way and it's a, it has a stronger sense of itself it, mm. it, you know it's so self-contained her prose that it seems to cope with you trying to write like her whereas with Dickens it's so much more fluid um, it doesn't seem to work anyway I, I, I didn't just want to not write like him I also wanted to write like me uh, yeah. so I wanted my own voice in that book um, but what I did want from him I wanted his world I wanted to recall his world to life so uh, I was reading um, a lot of his books just to get that to seep in. It's the atmosphere um, that, that you want. I mean, I read, I, I knew Bleak House well anyway because it's my favourite Dickens, but I read that a couple of times again while I was I was uh, writing the book. And it just, they're just little tiny little things which are so lovely that um, when you re-engage with uh, a wonderful book like that, I mean, Dickens leaves a couple of tiny things, well, some big things, but some tiny things hanging in there as well, like... My little favourite is uh, Inspector Bucket wears a mourning ring in Bleak House. So he's in mourning for someone, but we don't know who, right. and Dickens never tells us. Um, so I've answered that question in my book. I've, <laughs> yes, actually, right. I've actually given him a reason to be wearing a mourning ring. And that, that sort of moment where you get this, sh literally get a shiver up your spine, where you're, as it were, engaging directly with... Dickens's own uh, imagination and, and you need to know the book really well to be able to do that because you've got to pull out little tiny things so yes I, I read it yeah, I, again I, and again I often think Dickens sort of secondary and third even tertiary Sorry. Uh, cast are more interesting than the, the main plays it's like watching a Marx Brothers movie the, you know, the, <laughs> the main plot where the, the boy and the girl singing to each other is really tedious you just want the Marx Brothers to come back on and you did pick out in Tom Arnold's a, lo a lot of the, the characters who are from the sort of sub subplots, Lady Deadlock hardly sort of gets a look mm. in, though she's she's glanced. Um, yes. But Tolkien, Tolkien, Horn, Tol yes. Tolkien Horns 
almost the main yes. player from the yeah. from the novel, but also that, but also Phil and uh, the trooper in the in the shooting mm. range. And was that deliberate? I mean, do, do you have the same sort of enjoyment? It was was that part of the the idea to take these minor lives that perhaps mm. aren't fleshed out as much as as the main characters? And... Some, to some extent, yes. I mean, what I deliberately did do was get rid of the caricatures. Um, I wasn't interested in Dickens' comedy. Um, partly because it wasn't the sort of book I was trying to write. I was trying to write a very dark book, uh, a darker than he could write because he couldn't write about the sorts of themes that I'm you know, writing about. Things like child prostitution is not something he could ever have written about. It simply wasn't possible with the conventions of publishing at the time. Um, so I didn't want the comedy anyway. And also for me, that's the bit of Dickens that works least well. Right. Um, I, I find some of his um, caricatures and the slapstick stuff just a bit toe-curling, to be honest. So um, I stripped out all, all of that. Um, and yes, it was, it was wonderful to be able to come at some of those characters from a different angle. I mean, Tolkien Horn's the obvious one because, again, in, in the Dickens... So many questions are begged about this man. You know, he has this amazing house on Lincoln's Inn Fields. He's obviously got vast amounts of money. He doesn't appear to be spending any of it. You don't know anything about his personal life beyond the fact that he sort of disappears and comes back. There's this sort of, you know, Dickens makes him very mysterious and, mm. and simply refuses to give you any answers to any of that. Um, but for me, that was just a gift because, okay, I said, right, oh, we've got all of these mysteries about Mr. Tulkinghorn. I am going to answer them. <laughs> uh, so I, I tell you what he's spending all his money on. That was one of my wonderful moments where <laughs> I thought, hang on a minute, we've got Lincoln's in Fields, we've got the house that he was supposed to live in, and we've got the John Soane's Museum, which is one of my favourite museums in London, an absolutely amazing place. If, if people haven't been there, yeah, it is it is absolutely extraordinary. And I suddenly had this brainwave, that's the only word for it actually, <laughs> that um, with all of his money and being such a secretive man, it would be perfectly plausible that Mr. Tulkinghorn would have constructed the most extraordinary private art gallery in the basement beneath his house. So I basically transposed the Soane Museum into Tulkinghorn's house. <laughs> And, and it just it just seemed to work so beautifully. And in fact, the two scenes in the book um, that are my favourites are actually the two scenes that take, especially the second one that takes place in, uh, in the um, in the gallery beneath. There's this lovely description in 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 Tom All Alone's, and it it does almost seem to stand for the entire novel. Um, and what you were doing with Dickens and sort of take, taking this world and creating a world with the world. He's not merely constructed this astonishing gallery and that's unimaginable expense, but contrived every stratagem at his disposal to deceive the eye. Light, shadow, looking glass, trompe d'oeil. Indeed, as Charles now realises, this space that seems designed for display has actually been created for another purpose altogether. And that almost sounds as though what you're doing is sort of taking this Dickens world and then ter- again turning a fictional world into another fictional world. It's almost got to play... Um, I sometimes felt like, rather, I think rather like... Um, uh, Charles at one point, um, uh, I think when Charles is chasing, mm. I won't spoil anything, someone through the room and they, they run straight into the wall. Yeah. You aren't quite sure what, what is, where does Dickens end? Uh, yeah. <laughs> where does Dickens end where do I start? Yes. Well, was that a question for you? Because I suppose the, you know, the, 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 the criticism could be, it's just sort of, this is something kind of takes a certain kind of courage or a certain, <laughs> even a certain kind of uh, hubris. <laughs> To take on, you're not just taking on Pickwick papers or something. This is mm. this is Bleak House, probably one of the great. Did you ever was that was that ever an anxiety, or, or obviously with Mansfield Park? 
as well. Did you ever have those moments <laughs> thinking, what have I started? Um, funnily enough, I was interviewed by, um, by BBC's Scotland about Murder at Mansfield Park, and the interviewer said to me, so this is your first novel, and you're trying to write like Jane Austen. <laughs> and it was only actually at that moment that I suddenly thought, ah, mm, yes, perhaps she's right. Um, I suppose uh, my defence would be, um, <laughs> if, if I need one, um, that I came to these books in the spirit of great love and, mm. and homage um, to them. And I also spent a great deal of time um, doing it properly. You know, back to that point about getting the words right in, in Austin, but, but it's not just that, it's everything. Um, in the sense that I felt I owed that to these people who, who are you know, rightly considered the, the geniuses of, of literature. Um, but, but also, I also felt that if I approached it in that way, in the spirit of homage and, and doing it properly, then I was entitled at some level to try to come up with something new. That was like, if you like to you know, paraphrase, as long as I wasn't trashing what they'd done, mm. um, there was something potentially interesting that I could do. And um, for example, I mean, if, if there'd been, if you say you can't ever meddle with the literature of the past, um, we wouldn't have had James Joyce's Ulysses mm. because he wouldn't have felt that he was allowed to engage with Homer. And I'm pitching my bar very high there. <laughs> um, but you know what I mean. I mean, yeah. we wouldn't have had the Aeneid if Virgil hadn't have wanted to engage with the Odyssey and, yeah. and uh, with the Iliad. So, um, you know, literature has always uh, fed on previous literature. Shakespeare didn't make up a single one of his plots, I don't think. I think absolutely every one of them come from somewhere else. So, you know, where do you draw the line that, you, you know, what, what's, what's sort of un, you know, unacceptable plagiarism and what's creative engagement? And I've tried to be in the creative engagement um, box uh, very much. I've tried to come up with something um, which can perhaps offer a, a new angle mm. on, on, these, on these books. Um, in The Murder of Metzler Part 1, it's a very light and frothy book. But there is a, quite an interesting point buried in there, if you know your Austin. Because one of the things I've done in that book... Uh, in, in the original, Fanny Price is the poor relation and the Crawfords are very rich and, and her cousins are very rich. I have deliberately switched that in mind. <laughs> so Fanny Price is now the rich heiress and everybody else has no money. So there is a point in that because the whole point about Austin is everything is hinged on who has the money. Right. Power and money are the same thing in Jane Austen. And your choices in life, especially if you're a young woman, are entirely dictated by how much money you have. So even in that very frothy book, um, I, am, I hope there's, there's an observation um, about Jane Austen's world uh, and, and you know, that very, what we consider to be an extremely civilised time, actually wasn't if he didn't have any money. What young women were being forced into marriages they, uh, purely for the sake of having to survive. So... It's one of the extraordinary moments in Prime Prejudice, isn't it? There were Charlotte Lucas. Le- well, Charlotte Lucas, yeah. and I think it's very easy to underestimate. Yes. Because, and you see it in Persuasion, I think. Is it Miss Smith in Persuasion who yes. ends up, yeah. I think, when her husband has yeah, run out of her? She's destitute. She's destitute. Yeah, and then there's, there's a, you know, there is a horror story under all of those beautiful <laughs> Jane Austen novels. Uh, it, should we, just because Mr. Collins in, in Pride and Prejudice is funny, we shouldn't underestimate the, mm. the nature of the bargain that poor Charlotte Lucas has had to make. Yeah. Um, so there's that point with that book. Um, and in Dickens, in, in, with the Dickens one, with Tom Wallalones, um, the particular commentary I'm making, there's two things really going on there. One is that I'm talking about his London in the way that he would have liked to. 
He would have loved to have talked about the dark underside of London. Mm. No one knew it better than he did. But he couldn't. He could not write about child prostitution, uh, you know, the, the absolute squalor in which so many people were living. Um, he was writing for the bourgeoisie. Uh, that was the only publishing that was available. No one, no one was writing for anybody else. That was the readership. So he would have loved to have been as honest as I was able to be or, as, or sort of open-eyed. So there was that point about Tom All Alone's in terms of bringing something to the Dickens table um, that I hope is, is at least some positive. Uh, but also the whole, um, the whole Esther uh, Summerson and, and John Jarndyce relationship in, um, in Bleak House, where he brings her up from a distance and he watches her as she grows up and he has the intention of turning her into his wife. <laughs> without really um, there being any her having much say in this and um, you know I've always found the relationship between them even though we're told again and again and again by, by Dickens that this, he is the you know the archetypal benevolent man John Jarndyce I've always found the relationship between, between him and Esther rather queasy from from a modern perspective mm. I mean it's not that far away from grooming uh, we are looking at something with an older man and a very much younger woman <laughs> yeah. and um, a, 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 a relationship of control. Again, he's the one with the money. So that I always found that something that needed more exploration. So I have quite deliberately um, had another look at that sort of idea in my book and I've twisted a little bit further, taken it a little bit further than Dickens ever did but it's de- deliberately designed to be a critique of the original in a way that I hope just gives something new to the discussion. But fascinating because we live, I mean, we live in, in post-Savile times where, where I suppose a sense of uh, charity and, and, and mm-hmm. a show of goodwill um, but a, rela- and a relationship with, with, with young people um, which may, may or may not have seemed, depending on how you wish to view it, um, seemed innocent, suddenly... Um, has been proven to be anything but, and it is a fa- it's a fascinating thought. That it, um, did you have a sense that whether Dickens is hinting at things, or are these creative and, and other impulses beyond his control? Did you sense? I don't, I don't get the sense that he's he's hinting at anything. Oh, it's okay. No, I mean he had a considerable fascination with young girls himself. Let's face it. I mean he he. Um, his relationship with women was tricky. Let's, make, let's, be, let's be kind here. That's, that's, a, that's probably the, the nicest way one can put it. I, I felt terribly sorry for his wife. She, mm-hmm. she did end up being, being very miserable and, and he obviously you know, tried to erase her from his life and, and take up with a very much younger woman. Um, mm-hmm. So, uh, and the other thing about Dickens and women is you know, when you start looking at the women in the novels, there aren't many positive stereotypes or archetypes for, for women to, to follow in his novels. You're either mm-hmm. a sort of very, very pretty, innocent young girl, or you're an old hag <laughs> uh, that, who Dickens will laugh at yeah. most of the time. Some of them he doesn't, most of them he does. Um, and there isn't very much in the middle. Mm-hmm. There's, I often say there's literally no future for you in a, if you're a woman in a Dickens novel. You haven't got anywhere nice you you're can Miss go. Miss Havisham or... Well, Miss uh, Havisham, yeah. look at Miss Havisham. Um, you know, there, are, there are women in these, in these books who... You know, and Flora Finching in, in Little Dorrit, who's trying to hold on to her lost youth. He is savage about yeah. her. Um, you know, try to think of 
of you know women in the mid years of their lives who are who are seen as strong and positive characters and there really aren't any look at lady dedlock she's yeah. got a secret he will not forgive her for yeah. um look at estella i mean she's she's probably about the only non sort of beautiful innocent um young maiden that i can think of and she doesn't get a very happy outcome either yeah. um, it, it's dickens and women is a is a fascinating subject both in his life and in his books i think